and welcome to the 13th session of Islamic Book Reviews with myself, Osama Al-Azami, and my colleague at Edinburgh University, Omar Anshasi. This is a weekly opportunity I get to interrogate Omar about his latest um, ventures in the world of Islamic literature, uh, by which we refer to academic literature being produced in Islamic studies in the West. Um, so this week's book is going to be Transformations of Tradition, Islamic Law in Colonial Modernity by Junaid Qadri, uh, a much-awaited book uh, published with Oxford University Press. And our standard approach to this is Omar gives a precy of the book for, you know, five, ten minutes or so, and then we launch into a discussion. Omar's done the main reading, um, but I usually um, try to sort of have um, a substantial read of the book, and, and I've done that. And uh, we will have an engagement for maybe about half an hour before we open up the floor um, for engagement with any questions that have been written. So please feel free to write. Um, you can usually do that in the comments in Facebook or in the chat on YouTube. And we will engage those in the last 15 minutes or so of the show. Um, so uh, without further ado, I'd like to invite uh, Amar to give us an overview. Thank you. We've looked at a dozen books in previous episodes, and you know I, I read a fair amount in Islamic studies. Uh, this is a very significant publication. I would put it in the top one percent of Islamic studies uh, monographs I've read, you know, in the course of my life. And that's not only because it's so well researched and written, and it's important. And you can say that other books are important, and so on, and or they're well written, or they're accessible. Uh, but this one is, is asking very big questions while focusing on a particular case. The, the object of the study is the Mufti Diyar al-Misriya from 1914 to 1920, Muhammad Bakhit al-Muti'i, who dies in 1935. Uh, and the book reflects in a broad way, I, I suppose a question we're all living with and dealing with in, in various ways as Muslims. Uh, or indeed any any inhabitant, you could say, of the non-Western non world. Uh, and that, that is the fact that Muslims uh, live in a world not of their own making. And Muti'i's career emphasizes this in particular ways. And uh, Junaid Qadri, who I will refer to as Junaid, calls our attention to how even among the most thoroughgoing traditionalists, uh, of which Muti'i is, is a good example, uh, the premises, the, some of the epistemological commitments of Western modernity are adopted and embraced, often without even realizing this. Uh, so Muti'i is a kind of case in point, if you like, about this larger argument. And Junaid looks at a number of his treatises, in particular his work on the uh, establishment of the beginning of Ramadan and so on. Irshad Ahl al-Millah illa, sorry, Irshad Ahl al-Millah illa Ithbat al-Ahillah. So it's all to do with the sighting of, of crescent moons, especially uh, when it comes to the beginning of the month of Ramadan, very topical, of course, because uh, Ramadan is already nearly upon us. Um, so the book is divided into uh, five body chapters and uh, a very important reduction and conclusion. And uh, there are a couple of kind of key themes in the book, uh, which I, I've already alluded to. Um, but 
in the sense that Mote is really adopting, even as a traditionalist, sometimes subtly, sometimes not so subtly, uh, premises and epistemological commitments that mark him out as distinctly modern. Now, uh, we're all aware in one form or another of this kind of, uh, some have referred to it, uh, ref using W.E.B. Du Bois' terminology as a kind of double consciousness. Uh, you know, some have spoken of anxiety. Uh, he appeals to a number of thinkers. Hami K. Baba has spoken of mimicry. He cites uh, Shed and Tajuddin, who has spoken of translational seduction. I mean, these all kind of revolve around the same basic idea, which is that, that you know, Muslims are a tremendously self-conscious bunch. They cannot absent themselves from the fact that there is this profound, uh, if you like, ideational um, disparity, this power differential between Muslims and, uh, if you like, Western discourse, which has now globalized itself. So Muslims, you know, whatever issue we're talking about, whether it's family law or divorce, which is certainly something uh, Mutia was interested in, whether it is astronomy or the history of science, we fundamentally cannot escape the fact that we live in a world not of our own making. Any discourse produced in the Muslim majority world, with almost zero exceptions, will in some sense reflect this. There's always a kind of consciousness, a kind of anxiety, almost as though the you know Euro the Euro-American uh, gaze is 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 upon us, or that Europeans are looking over our shoulder. So this kind of and you see this in the work of Motiya. How do you see this? He illustrates it with a couple of examples. So, you know, in, 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 I, it's partly a work on the history of Islamic thought. It is, I would say, fundamentally more than that as well. I mean, there are very important observations he makes on the history of science. Muti'i's book, Tawfiq al-Rahman, Tawfiq Baina, something, 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 reconciling scriptural indicants and texts with modern astronomy, essentially. Uh, this is a work that has nothing at all to do with law. So he, he kind of explores the Muti'ian corpus, if you will, to establish these points. Now, um, there's Muti'i as, as uh, the, the, the um, important author Khairuddin Zirkili points out, is a staunch, one of the staunchest, in fact, opponents of the modernists, people like Abdul and Rida, and so on. And he, he exchanges plenty of verbs, particularly with uh, Rashid Rida. So this is something he explores, the kind of rivalry and the uh, competing approaches, especially to questions of Islamic law and theology in the first chapter. And the second chapter looks at, <clears throat> if you like, uh, Muti'i's particular sense of temporality, how exactly he relates to, in particular, the Hanafi legal tradition. Uh, tradition is, uh, is a very, and, and the typology of Ishtihad, different ranks and categories of Mujtahid. And he makes a very interesting intervention there uh, in the appendix, I believe, to his uh, Irshad. And the concept of tradition, tradition is a fundamentally important one to Jermaine's book. He draws especially on McIntyre and also on Asset to some extent, and a range of others as well. And I should say, um, I, I don't believe in, in the use of theory for, for its own sake. Uh, and in fact, most of the time I, I have seen it done in Islamic studies, it is not done well. It does not further, it does not add anything to the argument, it does not illuminate. In this book uh, that makes use of, I mean, Homi K. Baba is, is, by the way, impossible to understand <laughs> if you've ever tried to read him. He actually uses this critical theory in a way that genuinely illuminates the argument. And it's so 
accessibly presented that, that I understood it uh, very easily. And th that's actually a real challenge. You know, you know, I'm, I'm a very much a pedestrian when it comes to comes to critical theory. Um, so in the third chapter, he talks uh, primarily about you know the history of science and astronomy, as particularly as it occurs in this text of Fikr Ahmed. Very interesting things going on there. Uh, you know, how does he embrace this kind of Western triumphalist historiography of science? The fourth chapter was very topical, of course, looking at the use of calculations for determining the beginning of Ramadan. And the fifth chapter is very fascinating, theoretically drawn on Esed and others, because it really explores the uh, religious secular binary through this very interesting legal debate on uh, witness testimony for establishing the beginning of the month of Ramadan and the end of the month of Ramadan and so on. Uh, so it's a, it's a wide-ranging work, focusing, of course, on, on the work of Muti'i in particular, this one work, but bringing him into conversation with many authors and giving us a, a kind of wonderful insight into the kind of debates that happened in the modern period, the kind of debates that are still very much with us. I mean, none of these debates are not still regularly discussed in, you know, coffee shops, well, COVID notwithstanding, internet fora, Facebook, whatever, today. Mutia was a very complex individual, I mean, almost to a, <laughs> to a shocking extent. On the one hand, he was a very much uh, in the uh, post-classical mold of scholarship. He wrote works of commentary and hawasi on works of Usul, for instance, Nehet Usul of Al-Isnawi, as kind of very, very, uh, very much in the post-classical mold. Um, he was a student of Muhammad Alish, the chief Maliki uh, jurist of Egypt, dies in 1882. Also the Mufti Diyar al-Masri the whole of the second half of the 19th century, Muhammad al-Abbas al-Mahdi, and so on. Um, and yet, uh, he was an avid devourer of foreign, uh, foreign books and translation and, and journals, including scientific journals in Muqtatath, most famously. And most curiously for me, I, mean, I was almost shocked <laughs> when, I, when I read this, he kept European dogs in his home and also marble busts, you know, of, of figures, very much in the European fashion of the day in the corner of rooms. And um, something that was very unusual in the early 20th century, his daughters and granddaughters uncovered their faces, they were sefirat. Uh, the terminology of the period, they were without hijab, which in that context meant their faces were uncovered. So a complex individual, and I, much of this personal information we know about him comes through uh, very interesting biographical material on him by his very close student, the famous Ahmed al-Ghumari, the Moroccan, idiosyncratic Moroccan traditionalist, um, who tells us much about what his contemporaries thought of him. Now, Muti'i was uh, both clearly very much indebted to the, the post-classical Hanafi tradition, but he also departed from it. And like all good traditionalists, when he innovates, not in the pejorative sense of bid'ah, but when he innovates and is creative and makes original points, he does not proclaim them as original. He, he wants to insist on continuity, but really what's happening is rupture. And he indulges in a certain amount of obfuscation. And I could give many, many examples from today's excellent book to show you this. Uh, so you find many books in, in the history of Islamic studies, especially since the 1980s, if you think of Wa'al Halaq and many others, books that you can characterize as books of um, continuity, uh, at, at least when it comes to um, questions like, you know, what is the role of uh, Qanun in Ottoman uh, Hanafi Hanafism? This actually, 
and then Ahmed Fikri Ibrahim on on uh, on uh, Tanfiq and so on. These are books of continuity, but this is uh, this is a book of rupture. Junaid's book is showing that a profound. I mean, it's in the title, of course. What you see with Mutiyah and indeed other traditionalist thinkers in the period, to varying extents, is in fact a transformation of the tradition. Um, and he, against uh, the few authors who've actually written on traditionalist jurists in this period, and I know our colleague Hamid al-Maraqib is, is undertaking very exciting PhD research on these Egyptian traditionalists in the 19th and early 20th centuries. And of, course, of course, it always goes back to Egypt. You cannot escape Egypt <laughs> if you're doing this intellectual history. Um, finally, uh, yeah, it, it is a book of rupture. So unlike Jusink, he says, or Gesink, and Dirafalk Gesink, Motiai, you know, he suspects that Motiai lacks the kind of agentive um, power that Jusink finds to be true of the you know, Azhari conservatives involved in, in curricular reform, for instance. No, actually, the premises, the fundamental structures of his thought, in, in many important respects, you know, while drawing on tradition, fundamentally shaped by this engagement with, with colonial modernity and Western modernity. And this is, this is just the fundamental reality we, we, we live with. So the book captures a moment, you know, even if you contrast Motiaita's teachers like Elish, where you know this transformation is beginning, so it's this kind of moment in history where you you, you have this uh, this this interesting intellectual it's a transformation uh, and, and a rupture to a great extent. Thank you, Omar. I mean, this is really um, a wonderful overview of um, a a book that you've actually praised very highly um, in your opening remarks, describing it as really in the top one percent of the literature you've read in the field. And that is high praise coming from someone who reads a lot. <laughs> so um, uh, I, I wanted to sort of um, take this discussion in a number of different directions, potentially, but it really depends on sort of, sure. uh, as always, we have a limited amount of time and we could, we usually, when we meet, we end up discussing things for hours and hours. And <laughs> that's not really something we want to subject other people to <laughs> on uh, on YouTube or Facebook. But the one of the questions that arises for me with respect to the question of tradition and continuity and and I was kind of briefly remarking, um, you know, making a remark uh, on this before we started. But with respect to um, the question of tradition and continuity, in a sense, there's an Islamic question, which is the academic question, and it's a very interesting historical. What is the nature of these transformations that are taking place? But there's also the Islamic question that um, what does this mean for the nature of the tradition? Um, you know, is this uh, and, and this is something which I find personally very interesting, uh, given my own sort of like background as a seminarian, um, as well as an academic, that um, in a sense, do such transformations, including instances of obfuscation and so on, um, do they represent uh, a rupture with, in what sense are they representing a rupture with tradition? And in what sense are they a break with what might be described as Islamic values, so to speak? And, uh, you know, that's that's an interesting question, which we don't explore in the academic space, I think. Uh, I think it would be very interesting for people to start exploring those sorts of questions in the academic sphere. Obviously, given the historical sort of uh, challenges of this field in particular, that it was very often seen as a, you know, um, uh, the controversies that are related to Orientalism and all of those sorts of things. It's understandable why people will sort of shy away from those. But I think uh, it'll, it'll be interesting to start exploring yes. them uh, on the part of some of us. Yeah, so yeah. this is a great question. And I mean, 
I'm sure we all agree that one has a an ethical responsibility, you know, to God and also to the profession, to or, you know, to the field of Islamic studies, however that's conceived, to represent one's sources accurately. And uh, I always, you know, I always appreciate intellectual honesty. If you're do doing something new, I like you to tell me that you're doing something new. <laughs> I do not like, I do not like obfuscation. Now, perhaps we should think of a case, an example with which to... Sure. Now, um, in the fourth chapter, uh, Junaid focuses mostly on the use of calculations to determine the, the beginning of the month of Ramadan, something very topical, so it's, it's worth our discussing. Now, it's, it's clear that this was very much a minority trend, right. or it was rejected by the overwhelming majority of pre-modern jurists. There are exceptions who accepted the use of calculations, such as, for instance, uh, Mutarif bin Abdullah the Tabi'i, Ibn Suraid, uh, in uh, Muhammad bin Muqatil al-Razi, the student of Shaybani, also a Subki. Now, Subki, because we have a, a treatise uh, by him on the subject, we know exactly what he said. Right. And his concessions to the, the astronomers are mild. Hmm. He still clearly privileges Ru'ya. Hmm. Clearly privileges Ru'ya. Right. He uses astronomy in a very qualified sense to discount testimony that would be impossible because, you know, it's not possible astronomers will say to cite the moon on this particular night. Right. And he says that um, astronomical knowledge, say, in the sky is overcast, hmm. is binding on possessors of astronomical knowledge. Right. Um, now, Muti'i accepts or he assents to, Junaid says, hmm. the cultural prestige of science in a way that no pre-modern authority does. In fact, even when he's citing modern figures like the great Tata Alam, Shihab al-Din al-Marujani, whom he copies from very liberally in the Irshad, uh, Marujani himself does not accept the use of calculations. Hmm. And it's nothing to do with an hostility to, to science or to astronomy per se. Right. It's, it's to do with the notion that, well, in the Sharia, we have our own rules when it comes to the topic. Now, you know, if you, if you step back, there, there is, there's a kind of epistemological shift taking place here. Sure. And uh, one of the reasons I think Junaid has done such a wonderful job of engaging with theory and the history of science and so on, all these other interesting disciplines, is he gives us a language to speak about this transformation. He gives us a language to speak about this transformation. Hmm. So, for instance, um, you know, Fit has, it, Fit has its own rules about citing and about, I mean, one example he doesn't mention, but a clear parallel here is paternity, right? Why is it that a woman whose marriage ended 11 months uh, ago, whose child is born 11 months after the end of the marriage, yeah. why is it that the, the, the paternity of this child is accepted as belonging to the, the father? For all the, schools or the Malikis? No, I mean, for 11 months, all schools, I would understand. Okay. Fascinating. The Malikis extended even further, five years and seven yeah. years and yeah. so on. But yeah. all, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's at least the majority view that historically, of course, that uh, about a year or so uh, would be acceptable. Now, according to modern medical science, you could say we know that uh, pregnancy doesn't last much longer than nine months. And if it does, they have to induce and so on. You, you've been through this as a well, indirectly as a father vicariously, we could say. Sure, sure. Um, now, what's happening here is, so 
Shari'i paternity, legal paternity, is different from, you could say, biological paternity. In the same way, citing the moon or the Shari'i beginning of Ramadan is different from the astronomical side of Ramadan. Now, what, what, how do we understand this? Muti'i adopts a representationalist understanding of reality and of science. So science is the kind of correct understanding of an objective uh, external reality. It's nothing to do with the phenomenology or the perception of this this reality by the viewer, hmm. um, which which is which is interesting. So you know the Sharia, the, the, the pre-Muslim jurists. I mean, someone like Ibn Abidin, for instance, would say, "Well, the Sharia actually grants the testimony of a single witness in in, in an, uh, an overcast sky in Ramadan." Right. Cut the status, and he would say, "Yeah, uh, and, sorry, and the uh, ilm or uh, astronomical knowledge would only have a dhani, a dhani status, or even less." So, you have this interesting privileging within the kind of constraints of the Sharia. Now, it's not just the fact that Mutai um, is adopting this very marginal opinion, and we've seen that Brown has this article on this this kind of excavation of shawath or right. obscure or marginal view, something that Junaid discusses interestingly. Right. In this book, that's something uh, Mutei, by the way, does quite a lot of. Hmm. It's also the way he, you know, he 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 exercises his juristic virtuosity, his command of the breadth of tradition, and mobilizes it in order to make these or to justify these departures. Now, the, again, a certain obfuscation in the sense that, for instance, Subki, whom he draws on, of course, yeah. is is much 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 more limited in the, the kind of concessions he makes. Sure, but Mutei, um, because of his context, because for him, he says, our modern astronomical knowledge occupies the rank of kind of epistemologically of qat'a, of certainty, mm-hmm. and therefore we privilege it across the board over witness testimony, which could be dubious for whatever reason. Can, can I uh, interject here briefly? Yes. So, I mean, uh, I can see uh, in a sense there's this um, introduction of, you know, uh, an empiricist, I don't know if that would be the right sort of... Well, Qadri characterizes the pre-modern tradition as empiricist in this sense, and the the, the, uh, the the modern scientific one is representationalist. I see, okay, that's very interesting. So, um, okay, so, I mean, in a sense, the, uh, the modern scientific representational con- um, conception is being privileged by someone like Mutliyai, um, uh, and you're characterizing the... You know, he's not becoming clean about this as uh, an inga- a kind of obfuscation. But obviously he's also trying to make an appeal to tradition um, in doing that, right? So he doesn't want, he wants to, in a sense, smuggle this in, 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 in the way that you presented it. And I assume yeah. this is exactly how um, Junaid has presented it as well. Um, but I'm just thinking about, for example, the early Hanafi method, right? <laughs> and... They have certain, um, you know, competing uh, motivations when it comes to someone like Al-Tahawi trying to justify certain positions within the school using hadith, right? Um, and in a sense, uh, those motivations are, you know, yes, the, the nature of the impetus uh, has changed for someone like Mutiyai, uh, you know, a thousand years after Al-Tahawi. But in a sense... Um, We've already sort of discussed uh, someone like Behnam Sadigi, who, you know, basically says that law is very often about rationalizing. <laughs> and and so I think, I mean, I see this in people like Yusuf al-Qaradawi. Um, and 
indeed, what's very interesting uh, in um, the sections that I read where there were conflicts between Rida and um, Muqli'i, Rida is routinely sort of um, accused of this kind, and I've read it in the original Arabic, and I find it like, wow, you really can sort of like play with the arguments here. I can see what you're doing, but you're not saying what you're doing exactly. And and so I, I just sort of wonder: is that is that not sort of par par for the course? Is yes, the the, the motivations yes. have shifted, but. Yeah, I mean, this is look. This is what traditions do. We know yeah. this. Tradi yeah. Traditions are in fact dynamic, as we all know. Islamic law is a dynamic thing historically. Right. Um, and he draws on kind of McIntyre to conceptualize Hanafism specifically as a tradition. Yeah. Which is very interesting. Now, traditions have some constituent features. As I said, you know, uh, so Hanafism is a discursive tradition. It's also a tradition of the McIntyreans that. It has some um, constitutive features. It has constitutive others, you know, interlocutors like the Shafi's with whom it disagrees, and this is kind of creates its identity in some sense. Hmm. Um, it has its own internal standards and so on and so forth. So yes, you could say that um, in some sense, at least, uh, he is part of this Hanafi tradition, nice. but the, the, the nature of Methab authority changes. He speaks about this idea of the social Methab. So, he draws on a kind of network of Hanafism, you know, uh, Cairo is merely a node in this global Hanafi network and because of this modern technology of the telegraph and steamships and so on, the opportunity for trans-regional encounter, you know, often in a colonial context, this is massively augmented. So, you know, his, 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 uh, his interlocutors are people like Lucknowi and, uh, and Marjani. Right. Um, so it, it is a kind of global uh, perspective but the, the fundamental nature of Medheb authority does shift. Um, now, I can think of uh, another great example to, to, to discuss briefly would be the notion of authority within the Medheb. Right. So uh, he rejects in his appendix uh, to the Irshad Ibn Kamal's typology of muftis. This is a seven kind of rank, very popular, adopted by uh, Al-Harawi and, uh, and Ibn Abidin and so on. Right. Uh, and it is it is it is a kind of has an interesting temporal scheme. So seven ranks. The first three of them have some kind of ishtihad. Abu Hanifa is at the top, then his students. The next four ranks of mujtahid, the lowest four ranks uh, of sorry of of, uh, of uh, Hanafi, uh, are all muqallads of various kinds. Right. By the time you get to the seventh rank, they are uh, the singular. They are the hard to blame. It completely doesn't know what they're doing. They're wood gatherers, nocturnal wood gatherers. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Ibn Abidin yeah, uh, puts himself in the seventh rank. Now, you know, Junaid would say you might not accept that as historically true, but Junaid is interested in their, their self-representation and right, self-understanding. Yeah, yeah. What happens when you look at the schema into the 19th century, into even his teachers, Laish, uh, for instance? Right. The scope of legal authority narrows tremendously by, by the 19th century. So um, basically what happens is over time, uh, the scope for authority now is, and it is, it is purely, well, it's, it's to do with merit and so on and juristic acumen, but it, it's chronological. So the later you get, the, the, the further away from Ishtihad you get. Now, how does Mutiyah buck this trend? Well, first of all, he, he severely criticizes Ibn Kamal Pasha's typology of jurists. He, he says it is by Jiddan and al But interestingly, the lexicon uh, or Ishtihad 
and reference to the scriptural sources, which is a staple of modernist discourse. This period really enters the lexicon of, uh, of Muti'i. Even his teachers, even just the generation right before him, had not expressed, ex- expressed it in this way. So the sevenfold uh, model he reduces to a threefold typology, which implicitly lends him himself a certain amount of legal authority. He's not explicit about where he appears in this gradation of, of muftis. But look, he ultimately, I mean, one of the major conclusions of this book is Rita and Mutier, especially Rita and Mutier, among other models, they're butting heads all the time, they exchange barbs. I one which I have to mention, Osama, to our viewers, because it's very entertaining. Is <laughs> Rita very cruelly asks him, very entertainingly, <laughs> he says, you know, how... I wish you had a child proofread this for you, you know, because you make a mistake in terms of geographical knowledge. He, he implies that Salonika is in Anatolia. It's not right, right, right. Yes. Um, that, that you would not make. But anyway, Muti'i and Rida actually have a great deal in common. They share many premises. Right. Their language is often very similar. Their commitments are surprisingly similar. Now, a final point I, I want to make about this is expanding on the insights of the book. Mutia has clearly adopted premises and language and even legal conclusions that even his teachers would, would not have accepted. Someone like Elise, for instance. Um, now, uh, for me, there's something we can add to Junaid, and I'd love to see him uh, kind of write more about this. This tra- shift in, in traditionalist perspective, uh, especially from the late 19th century onwards into the early 20th century, is something that is a process that, that takes time. So, for instance, very clearly for me, if you look at, for instance, Amal Ghazal's fantastic article on Yusuf and Nepani and slavery, compare what Yusuf and, and contrast that with Abdul Rida, as the article very finely does. Compare Nepani's writings and perspective on slavery, which for him is a benevolent institution, and he's not apologetic, you know, he's not, he doesn't apologize for, for this. Uh, it's, a, it's a benevolent institution and so on, and it is actually good for the slaves. Compare that to how someone like Muhammad al-Yaqubi today, who is right. a, a prestigious, learned, uh, neo-traditionalist chair, compare that how, to, how to, he would talk, uh, to how he would talk about slavery. Now, so you can look at a whole range of issues. Yeah. You can look at uh, any range of issues. Yeah. I mentioned slavery. Junaid looks at um, certain aspects. I mean, the book is really focused on, on elements of ritual law, including right. the starts of Ramadan and, and so on. Right. Uh, you find this transformation. It's also true of astronomy. Tawfiq al-Rahman, uh, I mean, he looks at a kind of trend that draws on. Uh, Muhammad al-Maraqibi brought my attention to a fascinating fatwa by Alish in his Fath al-Ali al-Malik, this uh, important fatwa collection. Uh, when asked about the structure of the world and the heavens and the cosmos, Alish's teacher basically uh, defended the traditionalist cosmography based on Sayyuti's book on the subject where the earth is you know, flat and it's seven, seven layers of heavens and so on, and the, um, the, the, the earth is stationary and, and flat and so on. Uh, so you know, this resistance was only gradually overcome. South Asian ulama, by the way, the same. Uh, hmm. Ahmed Rida Khan wrote at least three major treatises. One of them is a book-length work on this point, although he wasn't, in fact, as traditionalist as, as, uh, as Alish. But anyway, so the, tra- the transformation of tradition, it's everywhere. You know, Junaid's looked at one uh, particular mufti, right. a very influential one, and looked at a range of his views. But you can expand the argument made by Junaid using his conceptual vocabulary, right. uh, you know, broadly. It's, it's, it's an insightful book, <laughs> you know. So uh, let me sort of uh, 
cycle back to certain um, points that you've made, or one particular uh, mm-hmm. point that you're you've highlighted, which is this um, shift that's taking place in the present, and you're you're talking about how the way in which, despite someone like Rida and Muti'i being at loggerheads, these two sort of modern figures, but Rida has a reputation as a modernist, Muti'i is, you know, a traditionalist in repu- by reputation in a sense. But they are, in fact, imbibing a very similar worldview by the, you know, they, you know, ironically enough, of course, they pass away in the same year. And for me, <laughs> what's interesting... I noticed that. <laughs> Thanks. I, but good, good point. It's very, very interesting. Yeah. And, and, and uh, I, I don't know when they were born. But, I mean, what's, um, what's interesting for me, uh, especially after reading someone like um, Ahmed Shamsi's uh, book, um, or indeed someone like Ahmed Ibrahim. Uh, uh, Ahmed uh, Shamsi basically argues that a certain trans, uh, transformation has taken place much earlier, right? Um, what he refers to as the transition from the classical to the post-classical tradition. And in many respects, um, you know, these, uh, these sorts of transformations that are taking place in the modern world um, can be recognized uh, as analogous to various transitions that have taken place at various points in history as well. Um, and it, I mean, it, it would be, I think, um, fascinating to reflect on how, you know, what um, Shamsi is talking about in his book on rediscovering the Islamic classics, um, in a sense, contrasts with the reading that uh, someone like uh, Junaid Khadri is bringing to the table. I, I wonder if you have any thoughts on... Yes. So, uh, yeah, please. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, Junaid actually cites Ahmed Shamsi's book a number of times. I don't view them as uh, in conflict at all. I actually see them as complementary. Sure, sure. I mean, sure. He, he talks, for instance, about um, one of the elements of the struggle between um, Rita, for instance, and Muti'i is, uh, is, is Ibn Taymiyyah. Uh, so Rita is involved in editing and publishing. His circle, his wider circle, is also kind of publishes works like Ibn Taymiyyah's Al Asita on this uh, kind of uh, intermediary uh, or intercession and, and so on, istighatha. Right. Uh, and Rita kind of counter publishes uh, a series of texts, including uh, Suki's Shifa al-Siqam on visitation of the Prophet's grave, alayhi So. Um, they have different visions of scholarly authority. You know, for for Muti'i, Ibn Taymiyyah is uh, Alim Su, and Rida is Alim Su. Right. Um, and it's interesting when Rida and Muti'i trade barbs, what are they accusing each other of the ignorance of right. uh, in, in the first chapter? Right. Rida tells him, as, as we've seen, you're ignorant of geography. You don't know that Salonika is not in Anatolia. Right. And you call yourself a alim. You can't do Ijtihad without knowledge of these things, he says. Right, right, right. So he's, he's complaining that he lacks, uh, lacks this kind of knowledge. Sure. And the refrain of Muti'i and Kothari and people like him is, you're a novice, you're self-educated, you don't know what you're doing. Kothari, it's not mentioned in this book, but Kothari says, Rita, you're not you're not fit to lead a village mosque in prayer. This I mean, the the extent of the animosity is these were these were very bitter debates. I mean, um, Muti'i, you know, has to conceal publicly the degree of his animosity for Abdu. He, he actually says to Ahmed al-Ghamari some years after Abdu's death, you know, 
nobody has corrupted the beliefs of, of the moderns like like Abdul and his influence so, has been corrosive. So again, um, I, I mean, I just it uh, brings me back to so many episodes in Islamic history in many respects. I mean, you think about the um, introduction, the arrival of the Mu'tazila into the scene, and the, in a sense, the transformations that are carried forward by the Ashaira who would be considered, in a sense, Ahl al-Kalam by the Ahl al-Hadith of an earlier generation, but now they're orthodoxy. Those sorts of transformations are similarly, I think, quite radical. Um, yeah. I, I would dissent on this point. So, yes, as, we, as we've established, traditions transform all the time. Sure, sure. The modern period is distinctive. This is, you know, this is one of Junaid's points, and it's one I entirely agree with. Right. You know, take Islamic law, for instance, which is, of course, Mutiai's major field. Um, the, the nation state has um, introduced, I mean, notwithstanding all of these arguments about continuity made by James Baldwin and Fikri Ibrahim and so on. Right. Uh, I mean, for me, it's clear the state is, is a major rupture. Um, okay. You know, the, you, I, I mean, you, you've never seen this scale that makes uh, perfect sense. I, uh, yeah. I think it's, I, yeah, so I think it's not just a departure of, or it's not just a difference of degree, I think it's a difference of kind. Um, you know, legal authority and how it functions, whether it's the nature of scientific discourse. Fundamentally, what is the, what is the major shift? Something Muslims had not experienced prior to the modern period, at least not in a serious way. Hmm. It's the, it's the uh, phenomenal ascent of, you know, an other, if you like. Right. You know, yes, it's true. Muslims disagree. They diverged. Their tra tra tradition kind of shifted in all kinds of ways. And in fact, even they made liberal use of, you know, Neoplatonist philosophy or the critical thinking. Now, they were not self-conscious and, and anxious to the degree we are. We cannot escape these deeply politicized debates. So they were a civilizational kind. They, they were, they were, you know, they, if they borrowed, they did so from a position of superiority. We do not. Very <laughs> like, often, or most of the time, I think that's true. I think, I think um, I'm not disagreeing that the sort of the degree of rupture that um, can be uh, witnessed in the modern period, and also the the time, the extent of time during which that rupture continues to sort of um, proceed in a sense, um, is unprecedented. So the scale, the temporal and the geographic scale of it. Um, but at the same time, of course, you know, some of this stuff has happened, but in the past, but in ways that the early Muslims would, would have been in a position of confidence. When the early Muslims were engaging the Mu'tazila, they weren't concerned about the sort of their lands being occupied by, you know, um, people who not just came physically and occupied them and vanquished their armies, but also brought um, very significant ideological competition. I mean, this is the significant difference. Um, I remember speaking to Judith uh, Pfeiffer, uh, she was one of my teacher as an undergraduate at Oxford. And um, she was saying the difference between, I mean, why were the Mongols not successful in sort of taking over the Muslim world? Why is it that they converted after like a couple of generations, right? Because, you know, when Islam came in 7th century Arabia and it burst onto the scene, they had an idea, you know, in a sense, they had an ideology. Whereas the Mongols came and they kind of were very eclectic and syncretic. And there's no question that uh, some of those ideas did seep into as Gabriel and others have, have documented and, and argued, um, into Islamic culture and Islamic culture, uh, properly speaking. But it dissipated ultimately, whereas for hundreds of years now, <laughs> the West has been this dominant force and continues to be, I think, 
this is where the epistemological um, dominance or domination is is what I think uh, is so significant. And this is, you know, in a sense, Junaid's major contribution. So the very structures of Islamic thought are irreversible, well, you could say irreversibly, but profoundly shaped by this encounter with colonial modernity. I want to give another example of that, if I may. And this is in the fifth chapter where Junaid explores this um, notion of the the sighting of the new moon as the the beginning of the month. And this is very interesting because because it draws on the binary, which many have seen as modern, especially Asad and so on, between uh, the religious and the secular. Um, Now, uh, he doesn't mention it, but I'm sure he's aware of this interesting article Roshain Abbas has has published on uh, the distinction between the secular and the Islamic. It's, It's fascinating. There is a kind of distinction, not religious and secular in the modern sense, but between religion and, and, and secularity, or if you like more accurately, this worldly and next worldly in the Islamic tradition, very clear. Right. And the example he gives, curiously, from the legal tradition, so it's a very kind of different sense of this binary than what, what obtains in the modern world, is the sighting of the new moon for Ramadan on an overcast night. Right. One witness unlike all other, nearly all other areas of evidence or other legal cases, right. uh, you know, whether it's crime or business contracts, I mean, some jurists accept uh, Yamin Ma'ashid for business contracts, right. but the testimony of a single witness, male or female, according to uh, you know, the Hanafis, Ibn Abidin in particular, slave or free, it's very you know, unusual hmm. uh, in, as far as evidence is concerned, for the beginning of Ramadan on overcast night. Now, why is this? What justification the Hanafis give? They they say, or they make this analogy by saying that testimony for the beginning of Ramadan is what they call Amr Dini, a religious matter. It is not a this-worldly matter because, you know, when Ramadan begins, the fast begins. There's no worldly advantage to be obtained through this thing. And therefore, it is more akin to riwayah, i.e. of hadith, than it is to shahada or legal testimony. So. In this kind of distinction between, uh, if you like, this worldly and otherworldly, and we're talking about Islamic legal context, right? So witness testimony is a religious thing in the modern sense. Right. Right. But they're invoking uh, this notion of Amar Dini. Now, Muti'i um, takes that argument further, again, in a significant departure from tradition. Uh, so the Hanafis would say when it comes to citing the new moon of Shawwal the next month and therefore the end of fasting, this rule of one witness does not apply, generally right. speaking. The, the, right. the, 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 the yes. because I mean, it, it is it is a affair because it is the end of the month of fasting, right, right. and you can obtain worldly benefits through this. One, for one thing, you won't have to fast anymore, and so on. So then, you t- the standard requirement of two witnesses and so on would apply. So there's an interesting distinction. Muti'i does not accept this, hmm. and he says the establishment of the month, whichever month, whether it's Ramadan or Shawwal or the Hijjah or whatever, hmm. is ba- you know based on the single single uh, witness testimony. So he expands the Amr Dini and also the kind of content of this notion changes in important ways. And finally, if I could say on on the the, the use of telegraphy and and, and telegraph on which he he wrote an important fatwa. So he accepts uh, the the report of uh, someone with probity, Adl, uh, uh, is binding on those who accept the, the property. So even when it's transmitted through telegraph, based on his understanding that you know telegraph 
like any other form of communication, is the sort of uh, a message transmitted between these abstract uh, minds, if you like. Right. Uh, so that's that's also very interesting. So I mean, um, I am conscious of the time, and and we should mm -hmm. be getting to the questions uh, in just a moment. Oh. I mean, uh, questions and comments. Um, and uh, we invite others to sort of join in. I just wanted to sort of maybe uh, make a reference to a couple of um, broader points. I mean, I, I think that I need to have to probably spend a little more time you know, finishing reading the book first. I've only read about half of it. Worth every, every second, absolutely. And, inshallah. And, uh, and also, um, I'll, I'll have to ponder some of these questions a little more detail, but I still sort of find myself um, thinking about uh, to what extent, notwithstanding those differences that we've spoken about, um, and I always find myself asking the question of, okay, you know, also the Islamic question as long, uh, alongside the academic question. Mm. Um, and uh, to a certain extent, it's a pragmatic response that I'm giving that, well, actually, these sorts of things are very similar to things that have happened in the past. There are significant and substan substantive differences. But those um, those are, in a sense, immaterial when it comes to the question of, okay, so what do Muslims do with this? Because uh, Muslims have to do something with it. And I think people like Muthi'i represent one option of ob obfuscation, as you've described it. And I, I think obfuscation is a bit uncharitable. It's, it's a bit... Yeah, no, no, I mean, it's reading. not his whole approach. It's of course, he's of course. doing creative things. I mean, but there is obfuscation about, undeniably. But, yes, I mean, but, you know, uh, that's Shafi'i's accusation towards the Malikis and the Hanafis who are not taking, you know, they're saying they're adhering to the Sunnah, but they're not taking the Musnad Hadith. And, you know, that's obfuscation, right? I think a lot of presuppositions go into making those sorts of claims inevitably. Um, and, you know, uh, it, it would take far too long for us to sort of explore those right now. I just wanted to make one quick reference to, you know, Mufi'i, the way in which you've described him reminds me of someone like Ali Gum'ah in the present yes who, very much, yeah. who is who who is actually fascinating because he's very openly uh, an admirer of muhammad abdu right so the transformation that's taking place within the heart of the religious establishment in a place like egypt i mean notwithstanding all of the other problems of ali Gumar's politics which i you know i'll bracket all of that i've written a book about it so you know <laughs> i need to talk about that but there's a fantastic dissertation that's just come out last year and it's uh, one i think it um, got an award at harvard for being an excellent dissertation, and um, Mary Elston's um, uh, dissertation on Ali Gumara and the notion oh. of transit um, tradition, and in a sense, Ali Gumara is very self-reflexive. He he writes about what tradition is, and um, I think that also is um, something which uh, is a major contribution. I really look forward to seeing. She very kindly sent me. Um, oh, a, wonderful! A, a well, hopefully, it's, when it's, the book comes out, we'll have a chance. But hopefully, to, uh, when the book comes out, it'll be. A major contribution as well. So, um, yeah, just want yes, to make that, that, that no, it's an excellent point. And I mean, I'll say a few things. So, sure, sure. Uh, I mean, of course, the 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 argument or the the process of accepting these premises has moved even further in, in the intervening period since Mulder right. is passing. Right. And uh, if you like, um, Guma is even more deeply shaped by this this encounter. Um, and, you know, as far as reviving obscure opinions and legal eclecticism is involved, I mean, Goma is 20 times more eclectic than what he ever was. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, you know, all of these discussions, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah can, well, in some, yeah, in some extent, I, to some extent. Now, um, 
And of course, Goma has this, you know, this claim, purist claim that it's okay that Egyptian law is based on French law because French law is derived from Maliki views anyway. But does he um, make that as a serious claim? Yes, and, a and in fact, this, this uh, no, no, this important book on uh, on codification, I forget the author. Tarik al-Gohari. says, you know, it's a fairly common phenomenon to find even among traditionalists. Anyway, right. Right. now, what is tradition? Tradition is many things. In For someone like Umar, it's a kind of prop or support he leans on, and it's, to extend the metaphor even farther, it's a stick that he beats his interlocutors with. I speak for tradition, I am Mr. Torath, you are not, go away, we don't need to take you seriously. Now, even though his his relationship with tradition is clearly a very complex one, even more complex than Muti'is, now, what kind of practical relevance, or what, you know, do these kinds of transformations have? Now, think of, I don't want to bring them up too much, but ISIS, for instance. Now, look at the, and I have spent a lot of time looking at the debates between ISIS and, uh, you know, traditionalist authorities. Fascinating. I mean, you know, I talked about a moral responsibility, you know, and Kisha Ali has written a lot on this, uh, very, very interesting articles. And another, other kind of, especially feminist historians, I find. Now, if you're dishonest, if you indulge in obfuscation, in this age, whereas Ahmed al-Shamsi tells us you can access thousands and thousands of texts at the click of a mouse, all you need is a good internet connection, uh, I mean, you'll be skewered. And ISIS, I mean, when, when it comes to certain issues, they absolutely skewer Yaqubi and so on. Abs- you know, in this, not in the sense that they win the argument, you know, that's, that's a whole separate issue. Yeah. But in the sense that they say, well, you're, you're clearly misrepresenting the tradition you're claiming right. to speak in the name of. Right, right, right. So why, 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 I, what, many reasons why Junaid's book is an extremely important book, not just right. in an academic sense, but for Muslims engaged in these questions about traditions, place in the modern world, and how we relate to our, our heritage, to our right. Right. Um, Because, number one, he highlights the extent to which, well, actually we are, whether we acknowledge it or not, whether we realize it or not, we're shaped by, by this engage, uh, by this, uh, relationship with Western modernity. And a lot of the time, Muti, of course, did not realize it. But using historians' tools, we can kind of reveal or expose this, if you like. And also because uh, I do think we have an ethical responsibility to be forthright about how we are relating to the tradition and how we depart from it. Hmm. Uh, One, you know, not to be uncharitable, but you know, another person who uses tradition as, as a stick to beat his opponents with is Khaled Abu Fadl. Mm-hmm. And he also engages clearly, and Kijali's even pointed this out using one, one particular example, right. uh, with the Wahhabis. And he, he misrepresents the tradition um, uh, to right. get That's one over them. So, yeah. Yes, and um, I, I have to say, frankly, on many issues, there are, there are some cases where actually the, the Wahhabis are the ones who stick to uh, views that were perfectly normal even in the early 20th century that Azharites now find repugnant or whatever. You know, I could give many, many examples of this now. But, um, but I, so, I, yeah. I think, you know, everyone does this to a certain extent, and I think uh, it, there are meta theoretical questions uh, that underlie a lot of it. So, I mean, it's fair enough, um, you know, whether it's Khalid al or for that matter, you know, Wa'il Halak in the impossible state and things like that. Um, you know, these are. Um, these are arguments, and arguments are selections from the data to make certain readings that very often can be somewhat tendentious. 
Yeah, and what of seems course. to be tendentious also can trans transform over time in a sense. Yeah. Of course. Now, look, I have no problem transform yeah. if you want to yeah. depart from tradition if you want to. But yeah. be honest about it. You know, this right, is my right. minimum. This is an ethical commitment and something right. we should Fair all agree enough. on as Muslims. Fair enough. You know, if 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 Scuba Subki's opinion on yeah. Uh, you know, uh, the use of calculations was substantially different from yours, yeah. then I want you to tell me that, okay, I'm making an intervention. I think Muslims so, today so in countries is, like Turkey rely on calculation and therefore, you know, science is qatay and whatever. But tell me you're making this departure. So let, it will let weaken me, your argument. Let, in, in, let, me, in let me interject here, Amar, just briefly. And, and again, mm -hmm. I think it's really, you know, I think reasonable people can disagree on these sorts of points. And the reason I say sure. this is because, <clears throat> I mean, even on whether they need to be forthright on all of these details because what um, one person will think is necessary to be forthright about another person will think oh that doesn't need to be said it's taken for granted and so you know it's a question of how many bases do i cover the example that i'll give you uh, i watched this on youtube it probably still is up there but i watched it a decade ago or so um fascinating discussion between uh, muhammad al-ghazali it must have been from the 90s or 80s oh. a young hibara of izzat Oh, oh. And it's a committee of scholars discussing, uh, I can't remember what the question was, but what, what was striking to me at one point is, you know, um, Yusuf al-Qaradawi said, oh, the Hanafis permit this. Okay, you know, I don't think it was the question of, you know, riba in Dar but, you know, it's something along those lines that actually, uh, you know, if we start, if if we make that sort of a claim, we're actually making all sorts of other claims which are very problematic, right? <laughs> that we're living in Dar al-Harb or something like that. But he basically said the Hanafis permit this, and therefore we can adopt, you know, that position. And then, which Hanafi by the way, Muti'i on on uh, yeah. on I think this question of commercial insurance yeah. has the same view basically. Fascinating. Uh, I mean, I've got um, um, Mustafa Zarqa's, um, you know, sorry. I think it's Mustafa Zarqa's book on Fatawa behind me, um, where he has this fascinating view as well. But in any case, um, I mean, that wasn't, as far as I recall, the Mas'ala. Qardawi made this point and then someone said, no, well, the Hanafis don't actually say that. This is the position of the Hanafiya, etc., etc. And Qardawi's like, you're not getting my point. Uh, you know, it's not that this is not the dominant position or it's not the Mashur or the Muftabihi, etc., etc. But this is a position that is found within the Hanafi Madhab, which I consider to be legitimated by for whatever reason. And that's okay. why, you know, and, uh, oh. you know, the fact that I need to explain all of that stuff to you, I didn't feel the need. To, he didn't say it like this, but I'm kind of lisan al-hal. I didn't feel the need to articulate that immediately in the first instance, because we have limited time, right? Oh. Um, yeah, and so that's that's what I'm saying. That yeah, sometimes I mean, people will not articulate things. Uh, yeah. yeah, but yeah. I, know, so I you know I think we're going to disagree on this ultimately. That's because, fine. That's fine. You know, because I don't then, think that's there, there a lack of an ethical commitment, so to speak. To no, but there, there are degrees. There are yeah. degrees. So in yeah, a kind absolutely. of impromptu conversation, you know, no script, and of course, you know, you have to make certain concessions also for audience yeah. and yeah. and these other constraints. Speaking but, of audience, uh, speaking of concessions to the audience, <laughs> do you mind if we... Sure. Sorry, I apologize. If you, if you want to finish off that so, point, I didn't mean uh, to. No, I mean, I, all I wanted to say is Moutier is, I mean, especially when it comes to this issue of calculations, I mean, he brings all kinds of... He cites a Hanafi jurist called Al-Qushayli, so not the famous Qushayli, Sahib al Basala, right. whom, you know, we're not able to identify. Junaid is not able to identify and uses him uh, to kind of support his perspective. So right. 
you know, it's not that Primon Duras didn't make use of these obscure and marginal opinions. Right. What is the distinction? Junaid says there are two things. Also, this, this, so there's this kind of discursive possibility of drawing on these marginal opinions. Right. But there's also the social circumstance and so on that makes it so, so necessary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, anyway, that's, that's the end of that point. Uh, 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 Barakallahu I, I mean, this has really been... That, that uh, mostly from our, our great colleague at Edinburgh, Jan Islam. Um, someone, uh, Ayub in 2006, has yes. I mean, commented comment that... Uh, yeah, it's a comment and just uh, thanking us for the work that we do and we appreciate your sort of joining. Barakallahu Um So, Jan Islam's first uh, remark I'm putting up is, there is a recent trend in politics slash Islamic studies scholarship to critique the nation-state from traditions native to Islam. As this book reviews scholars who struggled with uh, and against uh, the state, does it explore potential alternatives to the colonial state or perhaps critique the thinkers not offering them? Okay, so for good not, for question. not offering them, sorry. Good question. It's very, very easy to answer. I, one of the major themes of the book, in, in a sense, is the state, and it's yes. Yeah, yeah sorry, oh. sorry, go ahead. No. Uh, I mean, the answer is no, in the sense that he's not making a normative intervention here. He's yeah, not yeah. telling you, and it's not a work of political science. So you know, it's, it's a point about genre, really. Right. Uh, but he does say, you know, how how does the state transform things? And he talks about the introduction of the ahli uh, courts or the the native courts, the restriction of the jurisdiction of Sharia courts in the late nineteenth century, and interestingly, when it comes to uh, you know, uh, these uh, matters like the beginning of the month of Ramadan. I, the book, in fact, begins with, uh, in 1910, uh, Muti'i accepting yes, yes, a yes, telegram yes, from Aswan, testifying to the begin to beginning of the month of Ramadan. Now, this communication happened purely through official bureaucratic channels. So there was a procedure and a process. This is somewhat distinct from... Uh, you know, the, the Primon period, even Saudi today, where, you know, anyone can just go up to a judge and say, you know, I saw uh, saw saw the, the, the new moon, and if he's reliable, his system was accepted and so on. Right. But, um, you know, there is a procedure, the witness would have reported that so-and-so would have sent it up the bureaucracy and that it would have landed on a regional party or Mufti's desk, something like this. Right. So, you know, we, you, we cannot escape, <laughs> in a sense, we cannot escape or, or Islamic law certainly cannot escape the this, this state. Yeah. Uh, I mean, at least as far as the early 20th century is concerned. Yeah. I don't know. So, yeah, this, this hopefully answers your question. But in a sense, uh, I mean, on the broader question, um, I think the state is very um, sort of, it's a very natural target of critique on the part of scholarship. But, you know, the question of construction or normative political thought, normative political theory is just, it's an enormous one. And, yes. um, yeah, and... Uh, not to say that's unimportant. Uh, those are the sorts of questions I find quite quite exhilarating myself. Yes, but, um, absolutely. But, but challenging, yeah. And so yeah, I mean, this is not in, in, in no way a critique of uh, Junaid's Of course, of course. I mean, you know, you can't do absolutely everything in this book. <laughs> yes. I mean, he's done so much already. But yes. I should say that this, you know, as, Jun, as uh, John observes, and as you kind of implied, the state is a kind of obvious transformation because it's, it's huge. It's there, the size of the bureaucracy expands hugely. Yeah. I mean, I've seen, a, I remember a remark, I forget the figures, but if you look at how from the beginning to the end of the 19th century, the Ottoman bureaucracy, like in terms of sheer numbers, it's 20 times greater than it was at the beginning of the century, something like this. 
Right. So the state is an obvious kind of target, not only for critique, but analysis, of course. Yeah. Now, Junaid is suggesting that the change is, you could say, more pervasive, in some respects subtler, because the very structures of thought, how we think, the categories with which we think, how we understand ourselves and how we understand our tradition and how we relate to that tradition, these are deeply shaped by, by the encounter with colonial modernity. This is fundamentally what the book is right. about. Yes, I mean, I think we're going to be talking about the state for a very long time, um, but uh, I, I just want to, maybe uh, this is a, a nice point to conclude on, um, uh, which is, I was watching a an interview, I think, with Riz Ahmed, Riz MC, um, with GQ or something like that, it, it came up on my Twitter feed, and uh, fascinating, I mean, he was saying that, you know, among various other things, he was saying, we have lots of institutional failures in our time, and it really seems like the nation state doesn't work anymore. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, it's fascinating to, for that to be coming out of Hollywood. Um, yes, I mean, you know, we, if we've been following the news about Facebook, you know, shutting down sure. news sites uh, on its website in Australia. Right. I mean, uh, maybe <laughs> in this dystopian future 50 years from now, uh, we will be ruled by Facebook and McDonald's and all of these and, and Amazon and all these big corporations. I mean, you know, the East India Company had its own army. Why not Amazon hiring mercenaries and uh, conquering uh, country? Anyway, just a thought. That's all I can say. Or, I mean, as always, really sort of like um, eye-opening and mind-opening, so to speak, uh, literatures that. Um, we're we're reading and discussing, and really, with we're very grateful to Janet Qadri for writing this excellent. Yes, thank you to Janet. It's, it's a wonderful. But, but in addition, I, I want to sort of express my thanks to you for reading these books so carefully and, and sharing it with our audience. Yeah. Um, and uh, of course, we have uh, another week. Um, we've got. We're going to. I should mention that we are going to have a hiatus during Ramadan, uh, a month of ibadah, inshallah. And so um, during that month, uh, we will be taking a break from this, uh, but we'll be returning straight after that. So Amr, uh, what, what do you hope to go through next week, inshallah? Excellent. So I'm, I've read and taken detailed notes, and I'm very excited to be talking about Martin Whittingham's History of Muslim Views of the Bible, the first four centuries. This is the first of two volumes. The next volume, which is being written as we speak, will encompass... Muslim views of the Bible from, uh, you know, the fifth century all the way to modern day. Uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating work, very comprehensive in its use of sources that makes major contributions to understanding of how Muslims uh, received and read the Bible. Fascinating. And I guess um, uh, it would be interesting to, because you've read Samuel Ross's um, uh, dissertation on this, which, an yes. award-winning dissertation, of course. And uh, I'd, I'd be interested to hear sort of in, in what way um, this is a, a different text to that, which is also a similar yeah. exploration of Muslim views. Sure, absolutely. Uh, thank you for everyone uh, who joined uh, and who participated by uh, sending in questions and comments. And inshallah, we look forward to seeing you in a week's time. But until then, bi amayla, assalamu alaikum wa